Thank you, Jay. Uh-oh, he's got to go all the way around. Uh, yes, we, um, you know, the, the, one of the joys of being a member of First Presbyterian Church is our, is our beautiful historic building. One of the joys that comes with that beautiful historic buildings is we have all kinds of fountains in this church. We have the one down in the courtyard. We have many in the roof uh, on the top floor. We have a couple in the sanctuary. It's just one of the great assets of being a historic church. We have all kinds of water features. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of like, it's like being the captain of a ship that is, that is sturdy and seasoned, but has a few leaks. So, um, so it's, it's good to see everybody this morning. That's why this, this uh, door is barricaded this morning. You see that we've got, a, we've got a, <laughs> quite a swelling leak over there. Um, you may be concerned. Don't worry. It's not new. It's only been repaired about 50 times. So, um, so it's one of our favorites. That's, yes, it is. It is. Uh, oh, absolutely. It's a water leak. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Um, so we're, uh, it's good to see everybody this morning. I just want to, I want to, you know, we always thank Jay every, every morning, but I want to take a moment to thank Ross Brown, our, uh, our media coordinator who, who's responsible for putting this up online and everything. He's also the one who reminds me that, you know, when I'm having somewhat private conversations that my mic is not muted, so I need to, you know, before I broadcast, yeah, before I broadcast your issues to the whole world and my own, you know, that's a, it's always good that he does that. But, but again, uh, Ross, thank you so much. So um, we're going to do a little bit of catch-up work today uh, because last week, as, as we said, and, and as I reminded you, my, my outline is... It is simply that. It is an outline of the places I intend to go or the progress I intend to make. It's not a contract. Um, you know, we, we, we are free to be fluid. Um, and this week we're going to catch up on, on a couple of, the, on, a, on a story that we, we unfortunately didn't get to last week. But we're going to persist and go on to another this week. Uh, but it's important to understand that these themes do link together. And, and when I was originally trying to decide how to split up sort of this bigger section of numbers, these things all went together. So I feel pretty good about this. Um, but I want to begin, as I often do, with a story. And it's, it's one that y'all have heard before, uh, but, but it's, it's worth repeating in this context. Um, so we're talking about being in the wilderness, traveling through the wilderness, um, and how important it is that we have... You know, we talked about that first week that we have our supplies, that we have our roles uh, together, that we understand the rules, that all these sorts of things that, make, that are going to make moving a group of people through the wilderness as safe as possible. Well, today we're going to be talking about a couple stories where, where, the, where again, in the theme of rebellion that we started last week, people started bucking against that. Um, and, I, and I want to go back to a story about something that happened to me when I was an intern at a little church up in Virginia back when I was a student. I remember when I was an intern at this church, we were taking kids from uh, basically from Fishersville, Virginia over to the New, Rev New River Gorge in West Virginia to go uh, whitewater rafting on the, uh, on the New River. And that is a great river. It's a serious river. Um, and I don't think you can swat it. I don't think that does it. But it's all right. Um, but we we were on the we were on the New River Gorge, and you know, and, and I was there with a group of middle schoolers, and you know, middle schoolers, a few high schoolers, and they were newly out of school for the summer, 
and they were rambunctious and they were, you know, poking each other and flirting and all that kind of stuff with one another. And, you know, and it, and it did get a little bit, uh, it did get a little bit annoying, but it got, it kind of went to another level. Not that they got any worse, but it was a little bit more serious when, when our river guide, who was herself a school teacher and was doing this for the summer, when our river guide was trying to give us our instructions for how to, how to do things on the river, how to paddle, how to, you know, how to rescue, how to swim to the shore, all those sorts of things. And if you've never done any kind of whitewater paddling on the Colorado River or the New River or any of these, it really is something that is, it's intense and it's fun, but it's, it can be dangerous. And so she's giving these instructions and the kids are poking and flirting and they, there weren't cell phones yet, but they were kind of flicking each other on the ears, all the, mostly the boys, um, all that kind of stuff. And the good thing was, I was about to kind of drop the hammer on them because I was, a, I was a new intern and I didn't know how to handle kids yet. But she had that great, gentle, sort of firm but teacher voice. And she just kind of stopped for a second and she said, she said, now kids, I need everybody to look at me because I don't really think you're paying attention to me. I know that you're here to have fun, and I really want us to have a great time on the river today, but you need to understand something. That is a real river. This is not a ride at Disney World. That is not a log flume. This is not, you know, a, this is not, uh, you know, Copper Mountain or anything like that. That is a real river with class five rapids and real hydraulics and real strainers. If you don't know what a strainer is, that's when a tree falls across, across the river and the water goes through, but you don't. And you get trapped in it and drown. The, you know, she said, and, and I love this, only in West Virginia would somebody say, you need to take this seriously or you will be seriously killed. Uh, <laughs> what is seriously killed? Actually, the way she said it is like my friend from seminary said, you'll be seriously killed. Uh, they put, apparently put a T on the end of it in West Virginia. Um, but she said, you know, that this is a serious river. You will be seriously killed if you do not pay attention. You need to, you can appreciate it. You can love it. It can be a beautiful thing, but it is dangerous. And it, it, and it was interesting later in a disconnected, but, but related conversation. One of the, one of the youth advisors who was with me, a, a great lady named Debbie, Debbie Hevner, she asked me a question because we were just talking about all things theological as we've got a lot of windshield time driving the kids back from West Virginia after the, after the trip. And she said, Bob, I've never understood why we're supposed to fear God. Um, you know, what does that mean that you know, we're supposed to fear God? Because I don't fear God. I love God. I know God loves me. And, and I just I don't understand what that means. And if only because I had just had this experience with the river guide, something just clicked for me. And the click was, I said, I said, do you remember what the river guide was telling us about the river? It's beautiful, it's fun, it has a lot to offer, but it's a real river. And it is dangerous if you don't understand it or you don't take it seriously. I said, I think what, what it means when the Bible tells us that we are to fear the Lord, that as in Proverbs 9.10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, what that means is that the fear of the Lord means taking God seriously. If we don't take God seriously, then we will be in a world of trouble. It's kind of like the difference between, you know, just a, lot, you know, a ride at Disneyland and a ride on a real 
river. Do we take that seriously? Or, you know, another way to think of it, I think a lot of people have a conception, and, and mainly because they've been fed this by bad theology and, frankly, a lot of bad hymnody and, and, and you know, kind of lots of other factors. They have more of an idea of our God as a, more like Barney the dinosaur than the God who really is, who can be like the T-Rex in Jurassic Park. And we don't like to think about that because we like to think about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. You know, that's, you know, that's, and, and, you know, that's true. But you know, who talked more about the last days than Jesus other than John? And most of John, what John hears is from the mouth of the Lord. I mean, we have to take God seriously. When God tells us to do something, we have to take him seriously. I, you know, there have been so many times in, on airplanes when I've been sitting there and, and just like everybody else, you know, the... the flight attendant goes into the talk, the safety talk about, you know, here's the, you know, here's what's going to happen and, you know, their lights will appear here and the mask will fall down. And and I remember once I was flying, actually, where the the Pritchett's, I I was flying to Midland from, uh, you know, on on the way back from Virginia. There you guys are. And, you know, and and it was one of these late nights. I was probably the last plane in the Midland Odessa airport. And it was basically me, one person up towards the front, a little commuter plane, and these three middle management guys in the back who were obviously drunk and didn't care that anybody cared what they heard or how loud they were. And she's sitting here dutifully giving her talk about, you know, about what happens in the event of an emergency. And these guys could care less. Now, granted, they may have heard it a million times. But when she came up and she's checking our seatbelts and everything, I asked her, I said, does it ever bother you? that you're giving out life-saving, life-changing information and nobody's paying attention to you? She said, yeah, it does bother me sometimes. I said, me too. Um, <laughs> but that's kind of where we are. You know, ha- you know, having served as a pastor just outside of one of our nuclear weapons facilities for 14 years, I came to understand that all those little nitpicky rules and regulations are there for a reason. If you work at the Savannah River site and you don't wear your rad badge, if you don't clean in right, if you don't clean out right, you and your family will suffer terribly for it because you're dealing with nuclear weapons grade material on that place. And so you have to take the rules seriously. When you're on an outdoor adventure, you have to take the rules seriously. When you're on class five rapids, you have to take the, you, you have to take the rules seriously. And most importantly, in the case of the, of the river, you have to take your guide seriously. That guide is there to not just you know, ensure that you have fun, but to make sure that you get through the trip safely. Well, today what we're going to be talking about is how, how the people of Israel were starting to get a little bit too comfortable. And they were starting to get a little bit big for their britches in this wilderness journey and how they started deciding, you know what? We don't need for God to be in charge. We don't need for, we don't need for Moses to be in charge. We need to become a little bit more of a democracy because we actually know better than God and God's appointed. And so this is what, you know, this is an important story for us because, you know, the story of Korah and the story of Moses at the Rock of Meribah are both about taking God seriously on behalf of the people and, behalf, and on behalf of the leaders that God appoints. And so turning to chapter 16, we're gonna, this is what we were going to cover last week, but it's an important story and we're definitely not going to skip it. 
Now Korah, the son of Izhar, the son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abram, the sons of Eliab, who were Reubenites, uh, on the, uh, uh, and on the son of Pelath, the sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, I've had a couple of elders and maybe a handful of the women of the church come to me, and that was terrifying. But to have 250 of your leaders show up on your doorstep and say, who the heck do you think you are? That would have been bone chilling to me. But every, every leader, every pastor knows that feeling. You know, and, and you know, it is, that, it is that, you know, that, that confrontation when the people that, that you have been put in charge of just, just say, we are dissatisfied with your leadership. Who do you think you are? Now, to take it away from the ecclesiastical sense, you know, we've all been in that kind of situation where, have you ever been in that situation where you felt like you were given 100% of the responsibility for the outcome and zero authority or power to actually make it happen? You know, it's like, it's like all of a sudden, you are, it's like the one person doing it and, all, and there's, there's like one soldier and 100 officers. It's like, so, so you have, a, you have a, a, a dangerous situation there. And what's happened now is that Moses, who has been appointed by God to be the leader of this people, is being confronted by 250 people, uh, 250 others in, uh, in the group. And so for all the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why do you then exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now, you know, here's, here's something that, uh, you know, frankly, I take, Mo I take personally on Moses' part. I never recall Moses saying, you have to follow me because I'm more holy than you. Can anybody find that in Scripture? Moses saying, you have to follow me because I'm more holy than you. Why was Moses the leader? Because God appointed him. I mean, what was Moses doing when he, you know, when God appointed him leader? Minding his own business, shepherding sheep, not even in the same country anymore as his people. He was gone. He was out of it. He had washed his hands of the whole situation. But God appointed him, and God empowered him, and God put him on the front line. He never claimed, he never won an election. He never ran for office. He never aspired to be the leader. He was there because God had appointed him. And what's fascinating is that the first thing that Moses does, look at verse 4, is when, he, when Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who he is. And, uh, who is his, excuse me, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. Now, I, I want you to understand something, too. Uh, excuse me, he says, the one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. I want you to understand this, too. These are the sons of Korah. Who are the Korahites? They are also 
one of the tribes or one of the clans of Levi, which is also whose clan? Moses' clan. So, uh, yeah, there are a few Reubenites in the mix, but this, these are, this is Moses' own family. This is, I mean, this is, I mean, it's not his brothers and sisters, but this is his cousins. You ever had your cousins gang up on you? I've got two sets of cousins. In one set, I'm the oldest, so I'm kind of the trail boss of that group. You know, but because I wanted to or not. Yeah, I was bossy. I did aspire to that. Yeah, that was. Um, but on the other side, no, sir. I am the low man on the totem pole. And I would, there was no, I would not, I wouldn't talk back to my aunts and uncles, and I wouldn't have talked back to my cousins either. But, you know, but here's this family. His family has come to him, and he has said, and they have said, we do not think you're doing a good job. We, are, we do not like the way you're lording your, your, your authority over us, and we are dissatisfied. And so Moses said this, do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, and put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You've gone too far sons of Levi. So in other words, all right, you know, he's, and, and please understand, he's not, he's not drawing a line in the sand and saying, you think you're so tough? Well, you tried and do my job. He has he thrown himself on the ground. He has shown himself the posture, he's, he's making the posture of a servant leader. He's thrown himself on the ground before God and before them. He's saying, okay, let's see. I mean, this is, I, I do not take this as a dare. I think, I think in humility, Moses is saying, let's see what happens. Because there's always that niggling doubt in a leader's mind of, well, maybe, maybe I have overstepped my bounds. Maybe I have pushed it too far. You know, maybe I am wrong here. And a real leader will say, let's, let's check this out. Let's do an examination. Let's be fully transparent. Let's let the one who makes the decision make the decisions. And so, um, he says, uh, he says, we're going to, he says, uh, here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing? Oh, excuse me, yeah. He says, here now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself? I think it's fascinating. You know, why, why are they there? Because they're jealous of Moses' authority. Why? Well, because they want more. What have, what have we said over the last couple of weeks with the basis of their complaining? What is the only word our appetites understand? More. More. The only word our appetites understand is the word more. God has already given them the highest privilege of all of the tribes of Israel. They live closest to the tabernacle. They work most directly with Him. They are the closest you can get to God prior to your salvation. And they are saying, that's not enough. Does it sound like anybody else? Maybe, for example, Adam and Eve, who were given the entire garden and everything they could eat. But that's not enough. We want the one thing that God hasn't given us, which is to be like Him which is say we're going to be as good as God. They're saying, we've been given everything by God. Still not good enough. We want to be as good as you, Moses. So, God, so Moses says, all right, fine. We'll test this out. But he does say, understand this. He says, 
you have been given everything. You've been given to stand before the Lord, the to stand before the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them. He's brought you near Him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? In other words, these guys want that. Say, we want it all. He says, therefore, Moses says to them, verse eleven. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? In other words, again, I didn't ask for this position. I didn't necessarily want it. I wasn't elected by you for it. I'm here because God put me here. So it's not me that you have a problem with. It's the one who appointed me. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was a regular human being, as I am, <laughs> I heard that from a guy who's been a prophet and has done the amazing things on God's behalf that he's done, I'd kind of back off. I'd say, you know, okay, all right, I get it. But what did they do? What did the sons of Korah do? They said, game on. Their arrogance had gotten so high and so profound that they decided, it's about time. It's about time. And so Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, we're not going to come up. We're not going to play your little game. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make, for, make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey. You have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor have you given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? Will you, will, we will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. So what we have in these next few verses, and it's not exactly clear, but, um, but you have the sons of Korah who are Levites, and then there's this other group, these, the sons of Dathan and Abiram, who are the sons of Eliab, who are from the tribe of Reuben. So you've also got some Reubenites. Now what, what's interesting is that you've got the sons of Korah who are in the sort of the holy family who are already the attendants of the tabernacle who now want to be the priests. And they're challenging Moses on his spiritual authority. What are the Reubenites challenging him on? The Reubenites, they're there. What kind of complaint is theirs? Their complaint is a complaint we've heard before. We don't like the food. We don't like the accommodations. We don't like the activities. We are unhappy with this cruise. So they've, they, you know, they, we don't like the program. And so they're there to, to challenge not his spiritual authority. They don't say we want the, we don't, we're not saying we want to be priests. We don't want your prophetic office. We don't want to, you know, we don't care if you're holier than us or not. We're just not happy. So on the one hand, you've got the sons of, of, of Korah who are challenging his spiritual authority. And on the other hand, you have the Reubenites who are challenging what? His secular authority. And I think it's fascinating. The sons of Reuben are perfectly, do whatever you want in the tabernacle. But we want food, we want, you know, we want authority out here in the camp. You know, again, here's your church-state split. You know, it goes back a long way. You know, we, don't, we don't respect your secular authority over us. So Moses says, fine. <laughs> then he turns around and says to the Lord, I haven't taken a donkey from them. I haven't taken anything from them. I've not harmed one of them. Don't accept their, their offerings. Now, 
that's not a good way. That's not a good leader. There. You, don't, you know, if somebody comes to me, starts complaining about the leak in the roof, I don't turn around to God and say, or I shouldn't turn around to God. I may have once or twice, um, <laughs> and say, you know, Lord, send a plague on that, you know, 815 Canterbury Lane or whatever, you know, <laughs> you know whatever it is. Um, you know, that's, so, so again, we see here that Moses is, you know, he is a flawed leader as well. But, but you just see this, this simmering, this, this stoking of rebellion. And, where's, and, and the important thing, and I think it's important to, to take a little sideline on the Reubenites here, because we see that you know, complaining and complaining and complaining leads eventually to what? To rebellion. One of the, one of the things I said in my sermon on Sunday is that, you know, is that children soak up what they're soaked in. And it's true for adults, too. If we are constantly immersed in, a, in an environment of complaining, even if we're the ones doing the complaining ourselves, eventually that begins to taint and shade our entire perspective. And so God is, de- is or the, the scripture is warning us against that. So, verse 31. Uh, excuse me, no, verse 12, excuse me. And Moses sent, uh, no, excuse me, I, I missed that. I, I'm sorry, I skipped a, skipped a piece. In my notes, I'm missing a, I'm missing a part here. Um, so, verse 16. And so Moses said to Korah, Be present, you and all your company, before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. And let everyone take his censer and put incense on it, everyone of you bring it before his, the Lord his censer. 250 censers. You also, Aaron, each his censer. And so another, everyone was supposed to bring their own lamp. The idea is we're going to see whose light God honors. Because the censer, what is the censer? It's the, it's the, the little, the little you know, I guess, you know, is either you know, in the Roman Catholic Church, it's one of those things that, that swings the incense in it. It's a little torch, sort of an indication of, of God's presence. But he says, you know, bring, all of you bring your censer. Aaron, you bring yours too. And then Korah assembled all the congregation against them at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And then what happened? The glory of the Lord appeared to the congregation, to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron saying, Separate yourselves from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And Moses and Aaron fell on their faces and said, O God, O God of the spirits of all flesh, shall one man sin, and will you be angry with all the congregation? And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwelling of Korah and Dathan and Abiram. So what happened? They show up for the big test, and, Moses, and God is about to consume the entire congregation. But what, what happens? Again, Moses and Aaron intervene for the people. But what does God do this time? God tells them, All right, fine. I was about to wipe out, I mean, do, do we understand the gravity? Was, he's about to wipe out the entire nation again and start over. I mean, how many times has God threatened to kill the people at this point? Um, at, least, at least three times. But he's saying, he's, he says, all right, fine, I'm not going to wipe them out. But Moses, Aaron, everybody else, y'all may, y'all may want to step back a little bit. And so Moses, Aaron, everybody steps back. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, 
and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, lest the earth swallow us up. In other words, uh-oh, <laughs> this, this crack might get bigger. Let's get out of here. And then fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men offering the incense. Everybody who had challenged Moses and Aaron's authority. It's like chapter 13 where they were afraid the earth would devour them. Mm-hmm. And now, exactly, well done, exactly. They, they did. They, they said, the earth, you know, we're scared that this, this, this land is going to devour us. So, in a sense, like my grandmother used to always give us the wonderful opportunity to pick our own switch. Um, it's the same thing. Huh, the, so the land's going to devour you? Oh, that sounds good. I'll, I'll use that one. That's good. But that's what happened. God took the land, you know, we have these people who have challenged not only Moses, and this is the part we need to understand. They haven't just challenged Moses' authority or Aaron's authority. They've challenged God's authority and God's saying, I'm not going to have that. And so what does he do? He opens the earth and they fall in. I mean, they are literally devoured by the land. Now, this is an interesting thing. This comes up again. It's fascinating. This is a metaphor, not even a metaphor. It really happened in number 16. But it comes up again in, in Isaiah chapter 5, when Isaiah says to the people, therefore Sheol, hell, the land of the dead, has enlarged its appetite and opens, opened wide its mouth beyond measure. And the nobility of Jerusalem and all her multitude will go down, her revelers and all who exult in her. In other words, I mean, here's this idea, which obviously Isaiah is reminding the people of what God did to the people of Korah when they rebelled against him. He said, and, and I mean, hell has opened wide its gaping maw to consume those who rebel against God. This is what happens. This is not the Barney the dinosaur God, is it? This is, this is the T-Rex God. That they did not take seriously. I love the line in, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia when, when the children are introduced to the idea of Aslan. Do you remember who Aslan in is? Aslan is the, is the symbol, is, or he is the character who portrays God, who portrays Christ in the, uh, in the Chronicles of Narnia. And when they hear that Aslan is a lion, one of the, um, one of the uh, girls, uh, Lucy, says, says to the one who's telling him, says, says, he's a lion, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver, the one who's telling her about him, says, no, he's not safe, but he is good. We have, a, we have a belief that because God is good, that means that he's safe. But God is not safe, but he is good. God must be taken seriously. The New River in West Virginia is not safe, but it is good. Real life is, safe, is not safe, but it is good. And that was, a, that was the lesson that the sons of Korah and the people of Israel had to understand. That God would truly devour them. I mean, remember when we, when we hear the words that, I am a consuming fire? You know, these are not... You know, this is not a God with whom we may trifle. Why? Because he's the only real God. It's not like there's another God who's all just, you know, all sweet and rainbows and puppies all the time, and we can just run to him because we don't like the mean Old Testament God, so to speak. 
No, there's only one God, and he's the one that we have to reckon with. And so whenever people say, you know, I don't like that, I don't like that Old Testament God, it's like, well, okay, but you still have to take God seriously because he is the real God. Every other God is an idol. And yes, God is love, but he must be taken seriously. And so when we read the story of Korah and his rebellion, that's really what we're talking about. I mean, so I, I love this. I found this one on the internet, this meme. It says, want Moses out? Korah's your man. Looking for a leadership change? You know, meaningful change now. And here's what you get for that. <laughs> yeah, here's the, yeah, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up. So, you know, so we have, the, you know, we have this example of the people thinking we know better than God. Yeah, Paul? <laughs> it, it is, and that little arrow points to the gift shop. <laughs> a t-shirt. Uh, yeah, I, I haven't been to the Holy Land yet either. I'll, I'll bring you a, a, a Korahite keychain. It's a little sensor. I wouldn't carry it around, though. <laughs> um, so that's story number one about taking God seriously. Let's jump over now, we're gonna, and I, re, I realize we're kind of covering, we're kind of skipping around a bit. I, I, I want to jump over to, um, to another story, and it's interesting kind of the way this is laid out. Um, because, again, we're talking about rebellion against God, but we're also talking about that rebellion, in a sense, taking place in another part, uh, in another quarter of the, uh, of the people. Now, when I take you to chapter 20, and I want you to, I hope you've read all the stuff between chapter, you know, chapter 14, when, and I'm sorry I did kind of skip over Aaron's staff budding, just kind of as a further confirmation of his leadership. But, um, but, but please do read that story. But have you read the stuff between chapter, you know, chapter 16, excuse me, and chapter 20? Of course you have. Um, what is it? Do you remember what it is? Laws, regulations, how-tos on sacrifices, stuff like that. Okay, you, I mean, so, you know, interesting stuff, good stuff, kind of the numbers, Old Testament stuff you expect. Then you have this, in chapter 20, verse 1. And the pe people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Whoa, wait a minute. That's, that's, that's not a story. That's a headline. Let's unpack that verse for a second. Because, you know, the, the original title of today's session is Changes at the Top. Um, first of all, the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen in the, first 20, in the first month. Okay, if we look a little bit later in this chapter, we'll see that this is the chapter in which Aaron dies. Okay? Now, this is a biblical chronology for you. If you go all the way to chapter 33, verse 38, you'll find out that Aaron died, catch this, 40 years after the original proclamation at Kadesh Barnea. Okay? When they, when they, when they freaked out and ran. So you know those four or so chapters, three or four chapters, between what we just talked about and now, there was 40 years in there. <laughs> that's, I mean, it's like, oh, wow. 
40 years of just kind of spinning their wheels in the same area. 40 years. Because we're about to read that, Moses, that Aaron's about to die, and we know that that happened 40 years after they left. I mean, that's a, that's a huge chunk of time. But that is, that is essentially the punishment period. And we remember that, you know, and, and by this point, most of the people who had rebelled against God, who had chickened out about going into the Holy Land back in, uh, back in chapter 13 in Kadesh Barnea, they have died. But there are three of that original generation who are still alive. Who are they? They're the younger generation. They're the new generation. Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Yeah, first line. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zen. This is where they were about to, to begin the march into the promised land. In the first month, and the people stayed at Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. That's too small a note for this, for this event. Who was Miriam? Well, Miriam was the little girl who made sure that Moses survived. She was Moses, I mean, of course, his mother played a critical role in his life, but this was the little girl who had to talk to the princess of Egypt. Can you imagine the, the bravery of that little girl in the context of that, con in the context of that um, that conversation, you know, the, the movies portray it as she kind of emerges from the you know, emerges from the bulrushes and, and just delivers this nice little soliloquy to the princess of Egypt. How do you really think that event went down? I mean, imagine that you're there, and you're. I mean, there. Here's the president. Uh, here's the here's the daughter of the president at the pool with her friends, and all of a sudden somebody emerges from the bushes. You don't think Secret Service would be all over that? You don't think that she was brought to the princess of Egypt at the point of a spear, probably pretty roughly? This was a girl, a little girl with incredible courage. And she was, she was with Moses. She was with Aaron. These, these three siblings throughout, you know, throughout this journey have been critical to the life of the people. When do we next meet her? We next meet her when she's, when she's claimed as a prophetess. You know, singing beside the sea, celebrating, declaring the vic God's victory over Pharaoh and the liberation of the people. Unfortunately, in the most recent episode we have ever, we see her also, she herself is rebelling against Moses' authority. So there's still that whole rebellion thing. But we cannot, we cannot miss the fact that she is the most important woman in the entire Exodus narrative. I mean, she outlasts Moses' mother, Pharaoh's daughter. She outlasts Zipporah. She is, I mean, she is critical. And, we, and sadly, we just don't know enough about the rest of her. But she, I mean, come on. Wouldn't you love to have anything you said or wrote still recited, still known, 4,000 years later? <laughs> I mean, you look, in, you look in the book of Exodus, we have her words, her prophecies, her song, her celebration. I don't want us to pass too quickly over the death of Miriam. Um, but, but Miriam does pass. She dies. Um, it's fascinating. Uh, one commentator said that it's really interesting that 
that I, he actually says that she's the most important woman in the Old Testament. Um, I, uh, probably other than Eve, I guess she's pretty important too. But um, most important woman in the Old Testament. It's, it's fascinating that the most prominent, most important woman in the Old Testament has the same name essentially as the as the, as the most important woman in the New Testament, Mary. Um, you know, Miriam and Mary are the same name. Kind of like, kind of like Jesus and Joshua are the same name. And you have the, it, so we cannot go past that. And I think it's, I don't know. I hate the fact that that we're just left, we're only left with the headline and not with the story. But that's what we're left with. So, so we have this, so we, in chapter 20, the, the emergence from the 40 years of punishment is met with, you know, a, a, in some ways with a harbinger of what's to come, Miriam's own death. Well, we've got, you know, we find at the end of chapter 20, Aaron's death, and we'll cover that in a second. But in the middle, we have a very interesting and a tragic story. Very interesting and a tragic story in chapter 20. Um, oh, let me get there. In chapter 20. Um, now there was no water for the congregation. And they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. <laughs> Here we go again. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Oh my gosh, seriously? I mean, why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out? Now this gets me. Why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? Now, hold, pump the brakes here, chief. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt? The, none of these people have been in Egypt. This is the generation that was born in the wilderness. They have only heard stories of how great Egypt was, like, you know, getting whipped and being starved and making your own bricks. I mean, you want to talk about an entitled generation that has no idea where they're coming from? No doubt. That, I mean, this is why the whole book of Deuteronomy takes place. This is why at the beginning of Joshua, they talk, and, and especially judges, there rose generations that did not know the Lord or what the Lord had done for them. And, and here they are saying, you know, they can't even claim that we were slaves in Egypt. This is stolen glory. This is like me saying that, like, well, when we defeated the Germans and the Japanese in World War II. No, you, you weren't there, Bob. I mean, America did that. Your grandparents were part of that generation, but you were not part of that. I mean, this is, this is, this is the height of arrogance and entitlement. And they, they kind of say, why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this, to this evil place? And then Moses, it, it is no place for grain or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. And then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting. And once again, they fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock, now this is important, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water from the rock. For them, uh, for them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Okay, so here's, here are my instructions. Okay, once again, people are assembled, they're angry. 
Moses and Aaron fall on their faces, go in to pray. The Lord shows himself, gives them a set of instructions. Says, all right, here's what you're going to do. You're going to go out to the rock. You're going to tell the rock to give them water. You're going to let them take their bottles, take their, take their urns, fill them up, and go water their cattle. Easy peasy. Okay, simple. Okay, simple solution. Let's de-escalate this a little bit. Well, that's not what Moses wanted to do. Moses gets like I get. People start complaining. He starts getting angry. I cannot believe the ingratitude of these people. Who do they think they are? Every, seems like every, I guess at this point, every 40 years, they show up in front of the tent challenging our authority. You know, it's just same song, second verse. You know, and he's just kind of, he's just kind of stewing. And Moses then took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, now, now, now here's what's interesting. What did God say? Take the staff, go what? Go, tell, go speak to the rock. The rock. And I'll give them water to drink. What did Moses do? He took the staff and then what? We aren't even there yet. He, went, he grabbed the staff and he went to yell at the people. God didn't say, go berate the people. God didn't say, you go give them a piece of your mind. Did he? No, he said, I mean, I'm, correct me if I'm wrong. It says, tell the rock before their eyes to yield water. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you for out of this rock? You know, again, listen to the syntax. Listen to the grammar. He said to them, Hear now, you rebels. So I'm giving you a piece of my mind here, bunch of jerks. Shall we... We bring water for you out of this rock? Yeah, like God needs help. I mean, and I heard several, several I think that, I think you're right. I mean, first, okay, so, so I'll continue. And he says, and, and, and then Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock. Uh, and then Moses lifted up, up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly and the congregation drank and their livestock. So, what is he doing? So, he goes out, yells at the people. God told him to do what to the rock? To speak to the rock. Did he ever speak to the rock here? Doesn't say. What did he do? Took his... I'll show you water. Didn't command the rock. He just got ticked off and started hitting the rock. He just... He just took it on himself. Mm -hmm. I believe, um, and, I, and now I've, I've heard all kinds of explanations of this, that it was, you know, that it was the, he didn't, he didn't obey, you know, didn't obey the Lord in the letter of the law. I mean, I think that's true. He didn't take seriously the command. God said to, God said to, you know, to speak to the rock. How did God bring the creation into order? He spoke it into creation. You know, he didn't beat it into submission. Speaks the, he, 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 Jesus came with the good news 
not the good, not the good conquest. You know, it's, it's, it's a proclamation, not, a, a, not an oppression. And then you know, he tells Moses, I'm going to save them. I want you to speak to the rock. Don't, don't go harangue the people. Speak to the rock. The rock can handle it. The, the rock's tough. But no, Moses did that. And then he didn't even talk to the rock. He, he disobeyed twice. Didn't speak to the rock, and then he hit it twice. You know, because why? People say that, you know, because, you know, I've, I've heard things like that it was because he was trying to affect some kind of incantation, like it was a wand and he was tapping it or whatever. I don't think, I think all that's hooey. I think, I think it all has to do with his disobedience. He let his anger as a leader, or he let his anger get the best of him as a leader. And instead of loving and respecting the Lord's children in their ignorance and fear, he got angry and he berated them. And then I think he, could, he tried to scare them. I'll show you who's in charge. And again, we see what happens when we don't take God seriously. Listen to what happens. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. Wow! Now here's the problem. We see, I mean, we look at this and we're like, all he did was hit the rock. No. Who is God? He's the one who sees not just what we do, he sees our hearts. What was, hap what was happening in Moses' heart right then? What was happening is that, that same complaining spirit. Because have we ever heard Moses complain before? Absolutely. We have heard him say, I, I didn't give birth to this people. I don't want these guys. They, you know, they keep following me around. I don't want them anymore. I'm done. He's gotten frustrated. He's been living in the wilderness and the sand for them for 40 years. Now they're complaining. These bunch of punks who weren't even in Egypt. They, were, they grew up in a nursery and a free, as free people in a free camp. Not a, not a one of them was a slave. They come to me and Aaron, the Lord's appointed and anointed, and they tell us that we, you know, to give them water. And why do we, you know, they're questioning our leadership. I'm going to go give them a piece of my mind. I'm going to call them rebels and I'll, uh, you know, and then out of frustration, he hit the rock. Now there are all kinds of sort of mystical ex explanations for that, that, that the rock represents Christ. Paul associates that with the rock representing Christ. And, and, you know, and I think there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, obviously, Paul connects it directly in, um, uh, in 1 Corinthians 10. You know, it says, for the rock was Christ. And I don't, I, I don't mean to, th I don't think he's saying that in a sacramental sense, that, that, that Jesus was there in the shape of a rock. Um, but he was saying, you know, he was saying that you know, it's about faith. Because what did, you know, what did God say? He condemned Moses for his lack of faith. You didn't believe. You didn't, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a question. Did Moses not believe that, God, that he could just say to the rock? You know, and, and here's the thing. I mean, let's, let's give Moses a little bit of a break. Back uh, in, in possibly in the same spot before, God did tell him to strike the rock. And that plays into the whole understanding of Christ because it's like, like at one time, yes, strike the rock and water flowed out. You know, it's like Jesus was crucified once for our sins. We don't, he doesn't get crucified over and over and over again. That's one of the real 
Protestant issues with the understanding of the Mass, is that Christ is not crucified over and over and over again. It was one sacrifice for all, one time sufficient for everything. That's why, that's why I, I resist when people get really freaked out about the crucifixes, but that's why the Protestant cross is usually an empty cross, because, because Christ has finished the work. It is finished. And so what we do in, what we do in, in communion is, we, is through the Holy Spirit and His power, we, we are given a sign and a seal of what Christ did on the cross, but he is not re-sacrificed again. That's why there is no altar in the Presbyterian church. People all the time erroneously refer to that big table in front of the church as the altar. We do not have an altar because what do you do on an altar? You sacrifice. That's why it is, that's why it is erroneous to call that an altar call. I mean, we do it because it's a colloquial thing, but that is not an altar. That is the Lord's table, and we remember what Christ did but that's not an altar. So when you know, so the idea is, is that yes, Moses struck the rock the first time, the once for all striking of Christ. But after that, how do we get the living water? By faith. Christ suffered once for our sins. Now we appropriate that, and He delivers it by faith. And so Moses' crime here, and Aaron's crime by complicity is a lack of faith. And, and, and we say a lack of faith. That's not just bad doctrine. That's, it means God saying, you've been with me all these years and you still don't trust me. And it's a very sad, it's a very tragic episode. But here, again, we wrap around to the main theme of, these, uh, of, this, of this episode today, which is that God is not a God to be trifled with. We have to take God seriously. Now, we have to take God seriously in His commandments, in His judgments. But what we see in this, you know, what, we, what we see in this episode is that we also have to take God seriously in His grace. And Moses thought that he had to do something for the people to be saved, to get water from the rock. And and God is saying, no, just ask for it. Believe in it. Believe in me. That's the difference between salvation by works and salvation by faith. And so this is an incredibly important episode. Because this is why Moses is never going to enter the promised land. And, you know, and I think that, and I wonder sometimes. I wonder if, because he was human, if Moses ever sat in his tent, outside of the tabernacle. This great relationship with God, looking out over all those people in that Egypt generation, saying, a bunch of poor saps. If they had only had as much faith as me, they'd be going into the promised land too. I wonder if they ever thought, if he ever thought that. Yeah, I'll confess, I would have. You know, if they'd only been as faithful as me, if they'd only had as much courage as me to trust God, like I've trusted God. And so what happens in this, this story? It's not, that, it's not so much that God came down harshly. It's God pulled back, the cut, pulled back the veil and revealed something that was in Moses' heart, which was that, you know, as long as things are going well, I'll trust you. But, you know, things get difficult, maybe not. 
I'm not trying to slander Moses or anything like that, but I think what he does is what God does is reveals that we all have the liability of that, that we can all, you know, we can all get into that position where we, where we start to think it's all about us and our accomplishments and our holiness. You know, was, he, was he beginning to believe after the whole Sons of Korah incident that maybe I am holier than everybody else? And I think God say, God's reminding him, no, you know, I am the holy one. Now, the good news is that eventually, even though Moses was not allowed to enter the, the promised land with the people of Israel, he will get there. Anybody know when that is? The transfiguration. One of the, one of the beautiful completions in the story of the transfiguration is that Moses gets to step foot into the Holy Land for the first time. You've got, you've got Christ, Elijah, and Moses, all there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Yeah, so, so clearly, because of Jesus Christ, because of what was going to happen, because, yeah, Moses was eventually forgiven. But God maintained what he had said before. So when you're reading these stories, I mean, these are two stories that at first seem like, so what's the big deal or what's, what's, what's the point? The point is, is that our God is a God that we must take seriously. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know, it's not by our holiness that we, uh, that, that we will enter into the promise of God. It is by His grace that we enter into the promise of God. All right, I've kept you long enough. Um, Enjoy your small groups. Let's, let's uh, close in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that through your word you teach us humility. You teach us that we ourselves need to submit ourselves to, to those who are in spiritual authority and that those who are in spiritual authority need to submit themselves on an even deeper level to you. Lord, we ask that that our humility would be such that, that we just begin to trust one another. We trust one another's motives, we trust one another's capabilities, we trust one another's, we trust one another's faith. And Lord, we just pray that, that by the difficult lessons learned in the wilderness by the people of Israel, we will grow and that we will gain wisdom from their experiences. Lord, we praise you and we thank you. We lift our lives to you in Jesus' name. And may we always take you seriously. Amen. Thank you very much. See you all later. See you Sunday, if not sooner. <laughs>